gentlemen, boys and girls, Diet Time is here. That's right, we are talking about the 2017 version of It on a special edition of Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal Patrick Hamilton coming to you once again from Derry, Maine, or as close to it as we can possibly get. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, and usually we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters, but we are breaking our formula this week because, let's face it, horror is having a moment, and at a moment that it well deserves. And so we're going to talk about the 2017 version of Stephen King's It, directed by Andy Muschietti. It's like it's a blockbuster fucking movie, so we had to talk about it. And there's one person that I trust, if I'm going to get into the sewers and, and chase that clown spider, it's the one and only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? I'm I'm a little sh- I'm a little shook, as the kids mm-hmm. say. I, I literally got back about an hour ago from seeing it. So you are very fresh. You've had almost no time to process what you have seen. Not really. No, I mean I I went I took uh, my daughter to go see it, and we had that that after that after movie chat where I proceeded to you know usefully explain everything that had been changed from the book to mm-hmm. much to her you know, edge of her uh, edge of her seat attention. I'm sure. <laughs> Because everyone loves to be that person who explains the differences between the media types that a story has been told in. I live for that. That's that's one of my reasons for being. <laughs> and it's why you're so good at it. But the good news is, Gina, we are not alone. Our good friend here, he this is a this is a three peat. Uh the one and only Phil Gonzalez is here. How are you doing, sir? Oh, it's so great to be here to talk about this movie. I immediately, when I started to read uh, people's reactions to it online, and I saw some things that were coming in, I'm like, oh, oh, oh I should grab Phil. If he's not going <laughs> to talk about it on It's Del Toro time, uh, no, I, yeah. should, I should grab him to, to talk about it here. Yeah, I almost did uh, talk about it on Del Toro time. It was in our head, but uh, there's just no, there was just no way for the two of us to see the movie in enough time to really get a firm grip on it at this date. We'll probably cover it later because we've covered uh, Andres Muschietti's uh, other movie, Mama. Mm-hmm. So I was really eager to see this one. Oh, good. All right. So usually we would, you know, give you the rigmarole of, of a given movie. But let's face it, a good portion of our audience may have already seen it. If you haven't, it's a pretty simple story about a town that's full of evil that is personified on occasion by a crazy clown creature called Pennywise the Dancing Clown. And the seven kids who happen upon this secret uh, in one way or the other, and combine forces to try and stop it. Uh, written by Stephen King, the novel was released, and I want to say 1986. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's about right. Because that was a very distinct summer for me. That would be the summer I saw Aliens and The Fly on a constant basis. Mm. And when I wasn't watching those movies in the movie theater, mind you, I was reading this book. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, Gina, what was your previous experience with it? Did you read the book before the miniseries came out? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I 
as I've mentioned before, I think in the first episode, I had one of those weird 70s and 80s upbringings where my parents basically put no limitations on what I could watch or read. Mm -hmm. So I read a lot of Stephen King. And, you know, I didn't understand a lot of Stephen King at the at the time that I uh, like I it took me probably a third read of The Shining when I was almost an adult to realize, oh, this is an allegory for alcoholism. OK, <laughs> I get it now. Right. And it made it so much of a better book. And 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 I think that I got it out of the library pretty much as soon as it was released. And I as like you, I spent the summer reading it. It blew my mind. I don't think I slept well that particular summer. <laughs> Um, I spent a lot of time fretting over how would this thing appear to me because I had many things that I was afraid of. I was a fretful child. Mm -hmm. I was a fretful teenager. I, the only th question was how would he show up and appear to me before ripping my head off like poor Eddie Corcoran. <laughs> very, very true. Phil, what was your previous experience with the Stephen King generation of the story. Well, I very much remember the year it came out because uh, it was featured prominently on end caps at the grocery store when it was in paperback. And that's it's had that iconic cover of the green claw coming up through the grate, mm -hmm. uh, the sewer grate. But I didn't read it until bef it was the miniseries had been announced and I wanted to read the novel before I saw the movie. So that would have been... It would have been my freshman year in high school, and I just devoured it. I just – I read that thing. I mean, everyone was reading it. It was a huge deal at school to be reading it and because it was just this massive tome, mm -hmm. and uh, it really stuck with me. I've read it several times since then. It's it's one of my – for all of its problems, it has a lot – to me, it has a lot of issues, structural issues, content issues now that I can recognize. Uh, it's still just a – it's a thrilling novel, and a uh, it's very heartfelt, and it just – it really made a big impact on me. Yeah. I, I would say it was my favorite book for a very, very long time. Um, it still might be, despite its issues, and I think maybe because of those issues mm. that it's just – there are things that um, are inherently – not okay with it, but make some sense on a in a metaphorical sense. Even if they, you, when you look at it in plane of day, yeah. you're like, "Oh, that's wrong." Um, I I still believe there's a lot inherently in that book that describes a lot about what is wrong and what might be right about this country. Um, in particular, it's a very American story. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so next gen. So now we move on to the 1990 miniseries, which I watched with rapt attention. I videotaped it mm -hmm. because I was the only person in the family who knew how to operate the VCR. <laughs> and weren't we all um, really? <laughs> watched it rather obsessively. I owned a DVD copy of it. I watched it again a couple years ago. And I was amazed at how languid and misty it all is. And Tommy Lee Wallace directed it, who also directed Halloween 3 and quite a few things, but was very much a John Carpenter uh, devotee and protege. 
And it doesn't really feel too much like a Tommy Lee Wallace picture either. Um, and I think that has to do with it being on ABC television yeah. in 1990. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 very much, and I'd mentioned this elsewhere online, um, something that is interesting about 70s to 90s TV horror is it's extremely limited in how much they can show mm. and what their special effects budget is. And, and I feel that this movie really reflects it. I mean, the, the book itself is so gory and so over the top. I mean, I, I hate to go back to Eddie Corcoran's death, but it's, this is a kid who gets his head ripped off. And yeah. and I remember reading that and just like cringing because I think this might have been the first time I'd ever read anything in which a child character had died violently. And it was just one after another that people, kids getting their arms ripped off, kids getting torn apart, kids getting their faces ripped off. And it just, it was relentless. And everything that is in the, in the movie, the TV movie is very much as, as typical shown off screen, you know, alluded to, hinted at, and it just, it really loses that impact. Yeah. I think the only thing that approached it for me was uh, the jaunt. I was just going to bring up the jaunt. (laughs) I mean, the jaunt still scares the hell out of me. The very idea of it. I don't want to give it away because if you have not read it. Because it's a one joke story. I mean, it's like what? 12, 20 pages at best? It is longer than you remember because it goes into the history of the jaunt. Remember most of it. But Muschietti was attached to direct a movie of it. How could originally. you expand it to a movie? That was uh, it was optioned, and he was originally attached to it. It's, so this isn't his first uh, Stephen King rodeo, as far as like helping develop a film goes. But oh yeah, it's gosh. a it's one of my that's one of my favorite bad awesome Stephen King short stories. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the kicker on it is his best kicker. <laughs> I just I honestly believe that, and I'm sure there's someone who's going to say I'm wrong and. You can believe that, but in my book, it's his best kicker. But that's where I felt like, oh, at the point I was reading him, like, no one is safe the way he writes this stuff, and it only proves that point. And then when you ABC bought it before it even uh, was published, so they they wanted this. They saw an opportunity like, hey, this could be a miniseries for us. This could be hot. And then they must have started reading through almost <laughs> 1,200 pages worth of stuff. And go, oh, I was under a very different impression as to what this might be, this child-killing clown. How are we going to do this on primetime television for just, I, I don't know, did they do it over three hours just each night or two hours two each hours night. Each two night. hours each night yeah. but with oh. commercials with commercials oh so God. so about three hours total yeah and we don't need to denigrate it any more than you can swing a dead cat and hit somebody denigrating it online right now let's suffice to say that at the time it worked and it primarily worked for one reason and that is the actor who is playing Pennywise owns every second. He is on screen. It is insane how good he is as Pennywise the Clown. Can I can I make a controversial statement though? Sure. No, no. <laughs> I, I I think the Pennywise in the new version was actually a little more effective. 
I would agree with you. The what it brings over works for this infinitely better. And I, you know, for the ABC version, like his performance was all you had to go on as far as delivering, you know, real spook him up scares because, you know, a guy in werewolf hands isn't exactly, you know, breaking the bank on the spooky meter. Well, I think that, I think that the, that it is one of those difficult adaptations because, and I know I've discussed this with a lot of friends about Stephen King is Stephen King is really good in his novels at presenting an absurd situation that reads stupid but mm-hmm. that he's able to say, no, 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 this is actually terrifying if you're there. If this is actually happening to you, if if a movie Wolfman were really coming at you, that would be scary. It's not scary to see it happen because it looks as ridiculous as it sounds. But he's able to put you in the mind of the person in that situation. So when you're reading it, you're like, oh, this actually is terrifying. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. when you try to translate a lot of what Stephen King describes to the visual uh, visual medium, it loses all of its punch because you're you have this remove and you're like, no, that's just a that's just a wolfman. That's not scary at all because you're not inside the characters' heads anymore. Yeah. And I think because the miniseries is so flat, there's no style to it, there's no atmosphere. It when you just sort of show these things. I mean, even the, the the modern filmmakers were like, no, we can't do that because that's just it just doesn't work in, in a film. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that. It's my um, what works on the side of a van doesn't necessarily work when you see it in motion. The, the only time I feel like it's ever come close is Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> and every other time someone goes. Oh, look how cool that is on the side of that van. Wouldn't it be cool if that were a movie? And you come out with fucking Ghost Rider and you're like, no, oh, that fucking doesn't yeah. work. Not at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, I feel like, you know, Tim Curry works for what that is. And um, it's just, it, it worked for its time. Well, and but, I'll say that I think Tim Curry actually worked. He worked better for me in the first scene with Georgie because I didn't believe for a split second that a kid would hear the voice coming out of Bill Skarsgård's mouth and not just run screaming (laughs) that second because Tim Curry presented the clown very matter of fact. He's like, hello, how are you doing? I'm a clown. Whereas as soon as Skarsgård hits the screen, he's like, hello, how how are you? And I'm like, no, 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 that's, there's no seduction there. There's no trickery. It's like, oh, here's an evil monster. And that was the one moment where I was like, ooh, dial it back a little bit. Like, we get that you're the bad guy. Just dial it back a little bit. I, I sort of feel like, though, he's he looks sort of initially ridiculous. Like, he's got, like, these, like, weird Bugs Bunny teeth originally. And I think yes. that, you know, a small child would be kind of confused. Well, he sounds kind of scary, but he looks kind of funny. So, you know, maybe he's all right. <laughs> and the one I mean, thing that... I mean, let's face it, children are dumb. So, yes. you know, I mean, they can... And he had he had just hit his head. Yeah, he did. He was probably, he was a little confused. You know, he was like 6 years old. So, you know, I, I could see where, you know, a 6-year-old might at least be a little, you know, well, he might be okay. 
Yeah, he not only has the bunny teeth, but and this is something that persists throughout the entire movie. His eyes go in slightly different directions. That yeah. freaked me the Which hell out. Which starts off ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then when you start to get the reason why they're going in different directions, you're like, oh, that's crazy creepy. Uh-huh. Oh, no, that got me. That I noticed that almost immediately and that, that freaked me out. Also that he was drooling a lot. Which, yes. which, just like, I mean, he's like staring at at Jordy, and like, just drool is starting to, and it's like, oh, that's my like the hairs on my arm started standing up. It's just, I mean, it play, very much playing into a kind of monstrous, almost like a pedophile sort of thing, and it's like, it, there was a lot of nice little touches in this. That could have just been the makeup. It could have just been <laughs> poor Bill Skarsgård unable to. Yeah, it could have been just he can't unable close, to talk he, unable to talk around that prosthetic lip, or, or he, yeah, can't close his mouth around the teeth yeah. or something. So he's like, he just keeps drooling. You know what? Just keep it. Keep it. I like it. it looks good. Mm-hmm. Also, his eyes do kind of go off in two different directions, so we'll just play that up. Yeah. And they change color, which is also, you know, you know. And he's killed a lot of kids. We'll work that into the story. Man, he is a, Jared Leto just wishes he was as much of a method actor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Take prob- that, Leto. They probably had to, they had to physically restrain Jared Leto from busting onto the set every, like, few days. I have murdered. I have ideas. I have murdered ten children. You're going to give me this fucking part (laughs) um so let's at this point tell the audience those who have not happened to see it yet you may want to pause the podcast and you have the ability to do that it's not gonna go anywhere you've already downloaded it or you you're you you, it will know where you stopped go go see the movie and come back because now we're gonna spoil the hell out of everything that happens in it just know we for the for the most part, can we say we liked the movie? I thought it was yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was really good. I really, really enjoyed it. So, if you just want to know the opinions, that's this is the build up. Our opinions are we are very, very positive about it. And now let's get into the meat of it. Let's start with Georgie getting his arm fully ripped off. It was bitten while... off. It was bitten off. Bitten, bitten off. off. Yeah. yeah. While a woman says, I don't want to pay attention to what's happening over there. Well, that's a, that's a thing in the book. It's, it's and I, one thing I, I want to say very complimentary towards it. Now, Patrick, you grew up in Los Angeles and Phil, I think you grew up in Houston. Am I, do I have that right? Yeah, just north of Houston. Yeah. Okay. So neither yes. of you really had that small town experience. No. Where, yeah. Where, where I, I, I did. I, Initially lived in a town that had less than 5,000 people and then eventually moved to a town that had less than 2,000 people in it. So wow. one thing that one thing that King does really well and one thing this, this movie does well is just that whole what I call the everybody knows everybody shit kind of vibe where mm-hmm. like once you have a bad reputation, it follows you around wherever you go. The everything that people think is sort of, you know, desirable to, about a small town, I kind of hate like you know, everything's very isolated. Everybody knows each other. You, know, everybody's just sort of. It's just. It's gonna be a very. It's always an unnerving setting. But yeah. one one thing, a repeated theme in the book was the adults just did not want jack fucking shit to do what was happening to the kids. I mean, there's a scene in in a very memorable scene in the in the book, which event was not used in the movie, was when Eddie gets his arm broken by Henry Bowers. There mm-hmm. is. pointed out that like somebody said hey what are you kids doing and then when like henry vaguely looks in their direction they run away and that's something that happens a lot 
where the the parents, the adults in the town are very, they're either ineffectual or they're predators themselves. You've got right. you've got Beverly's father, which that is they do bring that into the the movie. You've got the the creepy pharmacist. You've got Eddie's mother, who I'm glad that they toned that down slightly <laughs> for the movie because in the book she really kind of comes off as an almost grotesque stereotype. A Stephen yeah, King gr- character, yeah, like just a very you know. And I am curious as to when they do the the second half of the movie, if ultimately you're going to find out that Eddie basically married his mother, and that Beverly, oh, and, yeah. and that Beverly basically married her father. And I, I, I am you know, I'm wondering. I'm really hoping they don't. You're hoping I, they, I would like I would like them to change those elements of it to something that is that we have not seen before. It is the most expected thing in the world. I mean, I think that makes it sort of sad that, you know, they, they all escape from these towns, but they still have some part of themselves sort of linked back to Derry. You know, well, they, I think that's, yeah, I think that's what he was trying to get at, yeah. is that they never actually left the town. Right. And they just keep repeating the same patterns over and over again. Like, you know, Ben loses a lot of weight, but he still thinks of himself as the fat kid, which is very, that's very accurate. Can I just say, I am really, really excited that they cast an actual fat kid to play a fat kid. Yeah, they really did. I, I am delighted that this was not, you know, he was not some, you know, vaguely chubby, soon to be, you know, thin and fit teenage boy. No, they cast natural fat kid, and he was fucking great. Now the kid who the kid who played Ben in the miniseries was what we were calling. He was definitely nineteen fifties fat. Yeah, he was. He was husky. Yeah, but like, but like, if you had seen him on a TV show in nineteen fifty, that still would have been the fat kid. Like, I think we have a different idea in nineteen eighty eight versus 1958 of what a large kid would be yeah he looked like he would be like the the, the ben of the tv series like somebody you see working on a farm the the real problem with the ben of the tv series is he looks like he could take some of the greaser bullies Boys, yeah, he he does, actually, yeah. like a, he's like a future linebacker he had a tough face yeah and he doesn't project a, a level of helplessness yeah that the ben haystack has uh in this does he doesn't feel intimidating at any point. He just wants to go along to get along. Yeah. And um, I think they did a very good job in casting all these kids. They did. They did. a lot to be said about almost all of these kids that are fantastic. I I will say that initially when Beverly appeared on screen, I'm like, this girl says she's like 17. And I'm like, oh, right. But in the book, she's supposed to already look kind of womanly and have a lot of weird interactions with men and older boys because of that. So the more it went on, I was like, yeah, I'm buying this now. Okay, This, this is this is good. I think, unfortunately, almost all of us might have had an experience with the one or five girls in our class who happened to blossom, if I'm going to use an old-fashioned term, uh, before all the boys, which are constantly lagging behind both physically, mentally, and emotionally. Yeah, because she was, I mean, the actor herself is only, she was, what, 14 when the movie was being filmed? 14 or 15, young 15. So, yeah, I mean, they cast a, they cast someone age-appropriate um, but I think it is one of those situations where once you learn more about her character, the way she carries herself, the way she the way she presents herself at school makes a lot more sense. Well, she she's had to grow up faster than all of those other kids. Yeah. And that is one of the things that defines Beverly by hook or by crook, uh, that she is ahead of these boys 
in a lot of different ways. She has to be more worldly. She has to be more aware of her surroundings. They can be more blissfully innocent because of our delightful patriarchal society. Anyways, <laughs> um, so that then gets me to one thing I was sort of alluding to um, when Georgie gets his arm bitten off. The thing that I really like about this movie is that it projects a town in which everyone is allowed to move ahead so long as they don't care about what gets the sausage made. So long as evil is allowed to exist underground, and so long as they turn towards it at some point, they get to churn forward, and that's all they care about. This feeling that pervades dairy is... I think very timely for where we are, which is if we don't expose things that are underground our society and we do not flush the systems of this stuff, we're just letting it eat future generations uh, underneath us and we're sacrificing them so that we can live this other life on top of it. And I was struck uh, again, uh, having not read the book in five years, that that theme yet again just felt like very fresh to me. Oh yeah, and 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 again, you know, if you're still listening, you haven't watched it, turn it off because it's a spoiler. Um, mm -hmm. When Pennywise is about to, he, when he basically offers the other members of the Losers Club, well, if you just leave Bill with me. You, know, you can you can escape just like you wanted to. You can live your you know you you can live to a ripe old age. And you, know, what do you say? You can just go back to the weeds or something like that. Which is you know basically I'll I'll give you I'll give you you know you can die of old age. And that yeah, it's just like if you turn your back on this, you'll be able to live a normal life. And yeah, that's that's you know that's very that's like you're like you're like oh shit <laughs> you know it's right. like and they all looked like you know they were thinking about it for a second. Certainly, poor Stan was you know <laughs> I mean, you know, knowing what happens to that character, I felt for Stan. I, I I really did. I think Stan was the audience surrogate, the the one who really wants to be brave, but knows that you know he's going to be pissing and crying and not being able to come through when you know the time comes. Oh my god, when he puts his bike into a kickstand every time yes. and everyone else lays their bikes down, I'm like, whoever thought of this gag? It, this is so fucking perfect for that character. Yeah, they they all they all they, they all gave them such you know, diverse personalities. I mean, you you Richie was, you know, funny to the point of being irritating, like you know a lot of class clowns are, but of course he had the best lines in the movie. Um, you know, Mike was very stoic, very, you know, he was probably second to Beverly and basically being an adult in a child's body. Eddie, you know, was, tried, but was a little, little bit of a wimp. And of course, you know, Bill was the, you know, unspoken of leader of the group. And they, and they, they did a lot to, to make them, to differentiate them from each other, which is hard when you're dealing with, you know, seven different characters all you know jockeying for you know position in front of the camera i was gonna say i thought they did a good job of really maintaining the humor uh between all the kids without it becoming a lot of forced jokes like it kind of like kind of happens in the miniseries uh they the kids were Muschietti 
I mean, just from his experience with Mama, you know that he's really good at working with children, at getting great, very natural performances out of them. Mm-hmm. And these kids had obviously been worked with, like directed uh, to to just in the direction of just having very, very believable interactions as children and as as friends. Like you could tell which friends had been together the longest and which of the kids weren't really as deep into the group. Like in that and that dynamic stayed consistent throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Um and I feel like they built it, at least for me, they built the relationship within all seven of them to the point where that rock fight happens, it felt way more natural than it did in the miniseries. Yeah. And in the and I swear to God, there must have been someone at Warner Brothers who said, I want that rock fight at minute 35. <laughs> you know there was someone pushing for it. Like, we got to get going. Let's throw some rocks. Let's have them be best friends. And you need to put them all in a corner where they don't feel they have anybody else. And when they discover that they do have somebody else, that there is someone who will stand with them, it is a revelation to them. And that that bonds them in a way that if it just happened because the script told them to, it wouldn't be nearly as believable or cathartic or interesting. Now, I do want to bring up uh, springing off of the rock fight. uh, Mm -hmm. Because and this is to me one of those things that makes it seem very obvious that this is a script that went through many different hands, went through many permutations, uh, was edited and re-edited and brought back to people and turned into something else. And we know that it did just from looking at like the different drafts. But because of the way they rewrote some of the story from the book. So you don't meet they don't they don't get together with Mike until well into the movie. But. They also took away part of Mike's character. Well, most of Mike's character from the book, which was Mike being the sort of town, the historian among all the kids, the kid who's very interested in the history of Derry. They took that entire plot and gave it to Ben because they took away Ben being an architect. Like they didn't have the kids building a dam. They didn't have the kids building any kind of like clubhouse or anything. So Ben wasn't able to be an architect. So they had to make him be something in the group. So they gave him the the archivist and the uh, the historian role, which meant that Mike ends up getting left with nothing to do for a huge chunk of the movie. He disappears. Like where normally we would be seeing him investigating the history of the town you, you're introduced to him. You get to see him have a run-in with the bullies. And then until he's brought into the group, he just completely disappears. And I feel that that was a real disservice to the character because whereas all the other kids kind of got their thing, I feel like Mike was just given a bolt gun, which he then lost like halfway through the movie. Yeah, and, I, and again, in thinking about how they're going to treat the the second the second half, I mean, Mike was the only one that stayed behind in, in the town. And, and I'm wondering, does this seem like something this character would do as far as either the movie? I mean, he doesn't like it there and, and he doesn't. I can't imagine how they would explain away that he feels some sort of obligation to to stay in town, which he does at the at the end of the book, too. Despite after the, the second go around, he still elects to stay behind. And, and I think with this the way he's written in the movie, I, I don't imagine that that's how he's going to be written in the second part because it wouldn't really make any sense with the character arc. 
Right. And they, they in the book makes it very clear that, like, you know, Ben was good at building things. He becomes an architect. Uh, 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 Bill was very imaginative. He becomes a writer. And then Mike was very interested in, in history and archives and he becomes a librarian. And I'm and like you just like going off what you just said, I'm, I'm curious, like, what are what are they going? Because they don't introduce a lot of those character traits. I'm just I, I'm wondering if part two is just going to be very different than what we get in the book. It's entirely possible. I do. They they do sort of set up something which I wish they had fleshed out in one scene, which is if you take some of the actual history stuff and put it on Ben, if and Mike is the person who comes in with the information that my 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 family and he's talking about his grandfather there, which in the book alludes to his grandfather being related to the caretaker at the Overlook Hotel. They, he, yeah. they weren't related. They were arm, they were army buddies. They were army right, buddies. Right, right, That's right. right. So um, he has the sort of dirty version, the, the, the skinny of how the town actually works. And I wish they had fleshed out, well, this is what the history books and and he goes, well, what, you know, what I found out, what really happened was this. And they have a meeting of the minds where they're Mm. like, oh, we're both interested in this and we can come at it from two different directions. If they they had just had one thing of that, I think it would have gone a long way towards making that swap more palatable. And they just, Maybe they had it, maybe they didn't, or maybe they felt that garage scene was too full of information already that they didn't want to overload it, which I get. But again, you he has to be a, a part of that group, an equal in every single way. And I feel like they're trying to do that with how he deals with Bowers, but um, I don't know it. I don't know if it's as successful for everyone. I'm just a, I initially I'm just a little curious as to which which one of them is going to have the honors of calling the rest of them to come back because you can't it's, it's it's a little it's it's unclear from from the way they they ended the uh, I mean we are we, we know that Beverly is leaving and if they're yes. and if they're following the book all of them except Mike eventually leave yeah um so I'm just you know wondering which one of them is going to you know have that particular task to do which you know of course results in uh, one of the characters you know, let's just say they don't they don't show up right <laughs> but we're into spoiler territory well one of the one of the hard things about the movie and, and i don't want to feel like i'm ragging on it but it's one of the weaknesses of and it's a weakness of the uh of the miniseries as well which is the book of course is is structured like it jumps back and forth between modern time and the in the in the past and it also mm-hmm. has these interludes of of dairy history so the story is very is very spread out like you don't find out what happens at the end of the kids story and until you get to the end of the adult story because they're happening simultaneously but because of the way it's structured by dividing these two stories into two separate movies all the tension you know these kids are going to survive like there's no, they they could get hurt, but because you know they're coming back, all coming back in the second movie, there was never any doubt in my mind that they were going to make it through their experiences. And I know that that's just the that's one of the issues with like any adaptation. But something very, it was something just I was very, I noticed a lot in this where I was just like, well, I'm not really worried about their safety because 
there's going to be an it too, and it's going to have all these characters in it. Whereas when you're reading it sort of going side by side, the whole thing is just very seat of your pants. I don't know. There was just something, there was a loss of tension for me in the way the story is structured in this way. I can understand that. I, I also feel like if you had tried to mix it up, um, it would have, it would not have had the, it would not have felt complete in any way, shape, or form. I don't know that you can make a movie that's just that's structured the way the miniseries right, of the right. book is. I, I just can't imagine it. If you go through and you have the sort of hook that the miniseries has, um, should we just should we just we told people that it's spoilers at this point. Yeah. It's, it's it's this okay. or like I said offline cutting each other off with like an air horn sound effect. He's like, stop! You're going <laughs> yeah. into spoiler territory. We'll bring it back. You're going into spoil. We're ser- now we're going into you have to know the story spoiler territory. Be- they set up a very good reason why Eurus Be- doesn't come back, and he has the closest encounter with it. And in the miniseries, how they really get you is they introduce all these characters sort of in order and you finally get to Eurus, Stan Eurus's, and we cut back to him and he has gone upstairs, taken a bath, cut open his wrists and written it in blood on the white tile. Yeah. He cannot fathom going back to Derry. He's too traumatized by what has happened to him. And it, 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 it grabbed me the first time I saw the miniseries and it grabs you in the book. Um, and this gives you a very good reason as to why that's going to work in the second movie. But if, well, yeah. if you structured the, if you structured it the same way, I'd be like, I, I'm just, it would be very episodic. Is yeah. my guess. Yeah. Which is fine for television because it's breaked up, broken up into little segments because of commercials. But in a movie, I, I just don't know how it would work. It would break my brain. Well, I, I feel <laughs> like he's, you know, at all times the the I hate to use the, the the weak link in the in the group because he does come through. But even at the very end, you can tell he's wavering and he's he's the first one to leave. And I, I don't think that he was entirely joking when he told Bill, I hate you. You know, I think yeah, that, you know, right. I, I, I mean, he, he kind of laughs like, ha yeah, funny joke. But no, I think he meant it. And, and no, and I, and I feel that I don't recall if the book went into this too much, but I feel like it might have been like a stand by me sort of thing where you found out that they kind of just drifted apart for a while because none of them really remembers the experience. And then yes. I think they that, drift apart immediately in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, some 27 odd years later, you know, just. You really want to be you? You reminded of this you know, horrific trauma from your childhood just out of nowhere, and I, I definitely, I, I'd be very surprised if the second half does not follow through on what happens to him in the book, because I, I feel like it's setting him up to be continuously be the one who really can't handle it. Yeah, and I do wonder how they're going to, in the book, uh, Henry Bowers uh, is and ends up being blamed for the deaths, and that he's he's the patsy. Yeah. He's also stared straight into the deadlights, and his brain is fried. And so, twenty seven years later, Pennywise comes to knocking and says, "Oh, um, all the people who set you up in this are coming back to town. Why don't you kill them for me?" And uh, so you get a the reprise of the greaser bully comes back. Um, 
So there's, I don't know how they're going to accomplish that necessarily. There's, I I like your idea, Phil, that the second half of this does not have to be a replication of either the miniseries or the book. Yeah. It could just be what works. Well, one for thing the second I'm, half. One thing I have my fingers crossed for, and I doubt it'll happen, but so this movie very much reflects modern trends in horror. It very much reflects kind of the Blumhouse school of of horror, which is the which you, you sort of notice in like the Insidious movies, uh, in the uh, in like the the Ouija movies. This let's focus on uh, or what, what's the movie about the. Uh, about the uh, the haunted house, the, con- <laughs> that's the conjuring. The conjuring. That's what I'm thinking of. The conjuring. This. Let's explore horror in the past. Uh, let's make it very very domestic focused. Uh, let's have a lot of like creepy sounds and a lot of like uh, like more atmosphere than 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 scares a lot of the time. But uh, because it because it it's very modern horror. The horror that we're the new resurgence of modern horror is very domestic focused and very. Uh, family focused and very character driven as wonderful as that is i wonder i'm hoping that they bravely in the second movie go into what i consider one of my favorite aspects of it and the part that most people rarely talk about which is the fact that while it starts as very domestic stephen king horror it suddenly expands into grand lovecraftian cosmic horror uh, about ancient gods and ancient creatures, and like this is a entity that has existed on Earth since the time of the dinosaurs, and it has poisoned the ground, and there are rituals and seemingly like this terrifying magic that's running through the that's running through threads in this story, and there's the turtle, and there's uh, there's like it itself, and then there's the creatures beyond the veil. And I'm hope I would love it if the second movie just blew up and finally let the ritual of Chud become part of the storyline and finally explain the deadlights because in the miniseries it just becomes another battle with a spider and and it's a real letdown and I'm I'm just wondering and hoping and praying that they finally just just break down and say we're just going to go full cosmic with this. We're going to take the horror out of the streets and up into the up into like the other side of reality. Well, I think that you know that, that that's I, I would like to see that too, and I think that the way that they treated. I, what did you guys think of how Pennywise was apparently just storing these children away in like this sort of like lava lamp of dead children? <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it that was a little. I thought it was a little strange. Like I thought it was weird that that as opposed to to the the book where there was no mistake that these children had been brutally murdered in the in the movie they all were just simply missing. Well, well, when he shoots, <laughs> no spoiler alert, but when he shoots Georgie in the head. Uh, when Georgie's like, my arm's missing and I want to come back home. And he's like, bang, in the middle of the forehead. And Georgie just falls to the ground initially. I was like, oh, shit. Was that really just Georgie? Are we going to find out these kids are all just trapped in the sewers? And, like, he hasn't killed anyone? And uh, I was like, that would be a real twist on the ending. <laughs> I was like, sorry. Sorry, Bill. That was actually Georgie that time. Um uh, no, of course it wasn't. It was a hidden clown. But uh, they dragged they, they they dragged that out pretty well, though. I was like, eh? eh? They did. That, they I did. was kind of like, oh shit. And then, oh, then. But I was like, are, but I was like, I was kind of with you. I was like, are these kids gonna all float down and have just been in a trance like Beverly this entire time, or or are they dead? Like they never. You never saw the bodies land, so I never like. 
it cuts away before you see what happens with all these kid bodies. I, I think that they are actually supposed to be dead, and he's just sort of feeding off of them. I, I mean, maybe that at some point they were alive, but you know, eventually they just you died a shock or died a blood loss or or whatever. I mean, I I, I think it would be very not good if, if we found out oh no they're they're all okay they they rescued they, they, they rescued them out of the tunnels and everybody's a hero now and i i don't I'm, I'm hoping they they don't do that yeah yeah i i have to believe that a lot of that third act has some setup for some cosmic crazy i hope so i hope because so, so much it does it does actually Give you the like, oh, that's why everyone's talking about you float down there. It's not just a sewer thing that we've or bal- or, or, <laughs> right? just, or just a reference to balloons. That's what I always thought it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it but then it, it harkens back to the balloons. Why is he so into balloons? He, he he. This is this mechanism that he's wrapped himself around the stories for so long. That this is how he amuses himself. Yeah. And it's all this temple to this that anyone who might happen upon it would be so insanely freaked out by what they saw. They might drop dead in fright. And so that part of it worked for me. I am a little bit weary of the idea of a giant cosmic turtle oh no we gotta have the turtle but look look they blew it they blew it this year with the dark tower movie which should have been the ultimate in cosmic horror like stephen king's here's the beginning of like you're gonna find out that you think uh, you think a killer saint bernard is scary well wait until you find out that there are things beyond reality that are even more horrifying than you could possibly imagine they threw that away so to me like it is the last is the last stand for seeing this weird universe that because the turtle of course is a part of the dark tower universe and and you find out in the dark tower universe of course that it the the the, the creature that is it uh is a fairly weak and kind of a nothing entity in the in the in the cosmology of Stephen King's world he's he's a kind of a joke and yeah he's de- he's defeated I, with a with a uh an asthma inhaler in one scene if i if i recall yeah. But like even like his like level of beings are are not very well respected. They're not that strong. They're not that they're they're not like there's bigger and worse things than this thing out there. And I would even if they okay Patrick even if they don't do a turtle, <laughs> even if they don't do the giant turtle at the end of the world, I would just love to see them go into into some kind of like just get it. Get, let's just get weird in the second movie. I agree. I think it's better now that you your now that this base has been built. There's no point in simply repeating it. What I do not want to do is have that you know six of them come back and then you know <laughs> dance to the hokey pokey <laughs> like. Can we get a scene of them just riding around on a bicycle, though? Because that's the oh, best yeah. part of the movie. The far and away. Just them laughing to soul music while they're eating Chinese food. I don't know. I would, like, I would like to see the Chinese food scene. I, I think that, you know, I, I think that that's a pretty effective scene in the book. And, and I mean, of mm-hmm. course, you know, in, in the miniseries, it was pretty cheesy looking. But but I think it could be done yes. you know, better now. This is sort of, you know, oh, you, you're having a good time. Oh, nope. Here's an eyeball on your fortune cookie. <laughs> because yeah. because the cosmic stuff to me the cosmic stuff balances out the 
balances out the whole like riding a bicycle to get your wife's mind back. It it balances out yeah. all the all the like very small personal demons because that's 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 what an 1100 page novel does. Like it lets you go from to the edges of space but also like d- deal with the inner fears of these characters and uh, I, I think I think they have a because this movie is doing so well. I think they have a good opportunity to like mess with the audience a little bit more. I I should hope that they take that opportunity to do it. And it's not like you could have an endless number of it movies. You got one. <laughs> you set this up for like one two. There's no third punch, so you might as well really swing for the fences and <laughs> and and do some crazy stuff um i i don't know how it's going to go over but as i've said many times on this podcast and others i would much rather watch somebody get up to the plate and start swinging for the fences yeah than try to bunt their way to first base there's just it's not what I paid parking for and bought a hot dog <laughs> and hauled my seven-year-old there for. Swing for the fences. Oh, can I also say that uh, uh, I made a joke on one of my friends. My, one of my friends was talking about not wanting to see this movie because of how terrifying it looked. And I said mm-hmm. we were trying to give him an idea of what it was like because I, I'll, I'll personally say I didn't find the movie scary so much as spooky and very atmospheric. Um, and I'm easily scared. But. I will say that when I when he when he was like what what is it like I said okay imagine Stranger Things that's it, that's it. <laughs> and, and and it's easy because um, the the actor that plays Richie is also in Stranger Things but but I'm gonna say that this movie would not exist without oh absolutely Stranger Things. not it, it's 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 they ca- they captured lightning in a bottle with Stranger Things and then they captured it again with this movie like. And I think, and, and it feels so much like a like. It, Stranger Things was obviously inspired by the works of Stephen King, particularly by it, and now it is being very much inspired by the aesthetic of Stranger Things. Like you said, down to having one of the cast members in it, because and 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 I'm not saying that as a criticism. Like it's it's very it's very uh, user friendly. Well, but very, it feels like an old shoe. The scene where, where uh, Stan is being chased by the leper. Uh, that's Stan, Eddie, right? Eddie was the one who was, who was ch- yeah. Eddie, Eddie, sorry, sorry. The scene where Eddie is being chased by the leper uh, felt so much like an 80s horror film. I was like, ooh, this is a monster movie. Like, mm-hmm. we haven't gotten a good, just a good visceral monster movie in a while. And there's some monsters in this. Like, just, and it was makeup and like, and like reaching out with hands and like chasing across the lawn. It was like something you would have seen in like, in like, a, like Demons or The Gate or something. Like, just a movie you would turn on in the middle of the night when you're nine years old and like sit there and watch against all better judgment. Like it, there's, there's, (laughs) there's elements of, of that feel like a legitimate version of that feeling of for every like super eight that tries to capture the feel of old Spielberg movies. This one definitely had the grit and the whole, like, you know what? Being a kid's kind of shitty. Yes. And like, you know, you get treated like shit and people don't believe you. And, even your friends are jerks and you get hurt when you're playing with them. But at the end of the day, you just got to hug and make up and remember who you're, who's got your back because, and that's that Steve, that's that ET thing. That's that Goonies thing. And this was like, a, I said, this was like Goonies with a higher body count in a way, like just like, because you had these sort of just like 
grotesque kids. Like they weren't perfect kids. They all, they all had their flaws and they were all kind of asses. And you had these kids who were all had all been hurt by society and damn it, they come together and they love each other and they do a good job. And like, that's something you just don't see a whole lot in movies. What I like about it being in, in, informed by uh, Stranger Things is, and there seems to be this weird backlash Again, like it's '80s nostalgia. I'm sick of '80s nostalgia, and and I kind of like wince a little bit, and I'm like, you don't think I had to put up with this shit about people romancing the '50s and the <laughs> '60s while I grew up? You would have thought people walked on gold sidewalks with diamond shoes in the fucking '60s. The way it was, <laughs> everyone just oh the music. Oh, the revolution and you're like shut up and i don't feel that this is overly invested in nostalgia-ness right i don't i just don't want to get angry that someone has a fucking movie poster up in their bedroom what i love i had movie posters up (laughs) in my fucking bedroom it's not science fiction i feel like this movie does a good job at uh, because it has to be set in the 80s if you want to set yes. the new movie, the second movie in modern time. This has to be a period piece. Yeah. They do a good job at grounding it in the 80s without without, without just rolling around in it. It's not – this isn't The Wedding Singer. This is right. – this is uh, and it's not even Stranger Things. Like it, it – it dress – it does enough set dressing and enough establishing of the time period just to make you make you feel like you're back in that time. Uh, and there's enough there's enough jokes and enough little references, but they're they're all character based. All the new kids on the block stuff, which was amazing. Yes, but that is all set up. Yeah, that Ben is new in town, and while that might have flown wherever he was from, it's like, I what I really want is when we come back to Ben, he's still just like listening to pop music. <laughs> it's just whatever happens to be in the pop hemisphere he's still listening to it. what if he's managing a boy band <laughs> he's one of those creepy boy band producers <laughs> like he's he's started like several successful bands <laughs> it's the biggest boy band manager in the world he's like that one guy in orlando who built himself a, yep. a mansion and then touched people yes yeah. oh, they just make him an xp of that guy and uh he <laughs> So he's like he and and it picks up right where he's like lost his empire. And so he has no reason to not go back to Derry. I think it would just be a nice reflection of how he's never let Beverly go and has instead like turned like his like youthful uh his youthful pining for Beverly into a, a youthful pining for boy band performers. <laughs> like he's conflated the two impulses, the two urges. And and now the only way he can, like, find satisfaction is through, like, the management of boy bands. Yeah, like he can't get an erection unless he goes, oh, 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 right. oh, <laughs> under his breath. Wait, there's people who can? <laughs> oh, we've blown the lid off it. Self-zinging. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that, was, that was a great uh, gag with the poster on the on the back of the It works so well. It does. I was, just crack, I was just cracking up in that scene. But it, it's not. it's not just... 80s posturing yeah the point of it is not to go uh the 80s were stupid there's or the 80s were awesome this isn't ready player one no (laughs) oh god every time i see that fucking trailer (laughs) did you know the iron giants in it (laughs) the fuck that freddy krueger is in it 
and half of the horror Twitter was like, yay! I'm like, shut guys. <laughs> You're all shills. <laughs> You're not. It, this is how it gets you. And and just the copy on it. I as a as a person who writes copy professionally, I have a problem with calling Steven Spielberg a cinematic game changer. Let's give that a couple more drafts, guys. Um, so, for all so I know, so I, one of my friends wrote that. I apologize, but I just it's not for me. Yeah, I read a review that focused a lot on the fact that the and I don't and yeah, we obviously mentioned this that the time setting has been changed for the the children's half of the story from 1958 to 1988 and they said that they thought that that was good because it was a movie that was meant to play into people who were that age when they first read the when, the, when they read the book when it first came out oh. so basically people like us yes and that it would it would kind of you know hits you in that sort of visceral you know because obviously a lot of fans of horror were probably nerdy kids who were you know had their books knocked out of their arms by people like henry bowers when they were in school and it just you know plays on all those different sort of mixed not always entirely positive emotions now we've talked about some very good reviews uh a lot of people have been very positive towards it there's also been a prevailing attitude amongst some reviews that's a little too episodic, which I don't know how you can have seven main characters <laughs> and an antagonist and auxiliary antagonists without it feeling like there's a lot of masters to be served. That just comes with a fucking territory. Then there's the group who feels that this is just chock full of jump scares and that disqualifies it as a good movie. And... Those people don't know how movies work. They do understand that The Shining has jump scares, right? That there's sequences in there where you're scared just because the music tells you it's scary. That's how horror movies work, people. I will say that I feel like the the trailers for this movie ruined almost every jump scare. Uh, almost every single Pennywise jump scare from the trailers just played out like they played in the trailers. And I was pretty disappointed that there were some great moments where Pennywise comes rushing at the screen that I was like, I've seen this like a million times now. Like I know exactly what's coming. I felt like the trailers did it a disservice by, by showing a lot of the cool Pennywise stuff. Not all of it. Not all that, that garage sequence is singular. Yes. (laughs) That garage sequence takes everything that may have come on the book and everything that came in the TV miniseries and goes, oh, what, wait, check this out. And the way Pennywise moves when where he can just unfold and refold, yeah, that I felt was just crazy looking. That I, oh, yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed. I, I, some negative reviews said, oh, they do that. He does that kind of, you know, herky-jerky kind of movement, like a lot of, you know, in a lot of modern horror. And, and I would agree, except I think that it is, it is effective here. Because I think that one reason why I felt that this Pennywise worked better than the 1990 Pennywise is, he, you know, with a few exceptions, Pennywise in the, in the miniseries, just was like a guy wearing clown makeup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in, 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 in this, he's barely passing for a human, <laughs> wearing, wearing, wearing clown makeup and, <laughs> and some weird sort of Victorian, you know, you know, pirouette 
Pierrot costume. But I mean, he looks like he's barely held together. Well, and he's kind of he's kind of moving like a marionette, and and like he doesn't really, like he's uncomfortable trying yeah. to move like a human being, and and so he's kind of like sort of limping, and and you know, like like he doesn't have any control over himself as a human. Well, and as for it being episodic, uh, that's kind of the nature of the beast. I mean, that's the. St- That's the story. The story is very episodic. And when you lose some of the connective tissue of delving into the history of dairy and doing the doing the all the all the cosmic rituals the kids actually have to do in the book, it does become a series of just sort of escalating events until you get to the climax. And I think that the episodic nature of the story gets sort of brushed over and smoothed out in the novel because you're jumping around in time so much that you don't notice that it's very A to B to C. Yeah. Uh, but once you just sort of lay it all out in chronological order, you're like, oh, it is kind of a, a, a quick and dirty story uh, that, that culminates in, in, in a final battle. And, and uh, that's to me, that's just that, that's the story. That's the story of the 19, well, 89 or 88 ver- story of it. When you do an adaptation, you take what works and you leave the rest behind. That, that's the only way. You can only tell the story that fits the medium in which you're trying to tell it. Could this have worked as uh, an eight-part HBO miniseries or on Netflix or Amazon? Of course it could have. I don't think it would have... You would not have had the experience of viewing it with other people, mm-hmm. of having them laugh and getting the charge of a group laugh or having the charge of group screams or having people spontaneously clap. That's the, the only time you get that experience is when you go to a movie theater when everyone else is in it and experience something all at the same time. The couple that was next to us got up and left in the middle of the third act. Oh, she could not take it. She was, it, she was scared. She was I, she goes, I, I've had enough. I can't, I can't. This is, this is, I, this is dry. I'm, I can't. I told you I couldn't do it and I can't. And she got up and left. Oh no. He, to his credit, he got up and, and went uh, with her, but she was unnerved. So. Yeah, they're going to have a, they're going to have a long, unpleasant conversation on the way home. Yeah. And she could have been triggered by any number of things in this movie because it's all about how. You are vulnerable as a child, and there's all these levels of machinations that are going on around you that you cannot control. And as a result, like, without that group experience, I just don't think it's... There are very few times when we all get to do that, and it might be dwindling. It might be going away. So while it could have functioned for the characters better in some other medium, I do feel that it is worthy of what it ended up being and um you know some people are not very good at understanding that let's let's talk about one of them we're all familiar with this individual he goes by the name of lights camber jackson (laughs) (laughs) oh mr camber jackson didn't like the movie mr camber jackson didn't like this movie the other thing is i don't know that mr camber jackson watched the movie this is something oh, did, I did, pick did, up occasionally like, from his reviews. Who was it that, uh, what was the movie that Rex Reed 
uh, he, he claimed to have watched and didn't actually watch it. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but I do know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I, he, he, he clearly did. He got like 20 minutes and like, yeah, you're, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, and he, this that's the vibe. I think he just, he, I don't think he, let me read you one thing here, okay? It's just, I don't want to bag on this individual any more than, than he needed, but for Christ's sakes. But he really needs he really needs it. He does. It is the latest highly anticipated adaptation of a very popular Stephen King novel. That's his opening sentence. Well, that's true. Okay. I'm with I you mean, so he's, far. He's not he's, <laughs> he's not wrong. He's not very perfect. Doesn't really draw you in. Right. Again, when you're going to write film reviews, writing is a component of this. Okay. Though, much like this year's Get Out, it isn't really a horror film. And that's when I go, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's okay. You should be allowed to not know everything in this world. But if you're going to call yourself Lights Camera Jackson, <laughs> the things that happen after the results of the lights and the camera, you should have some understanding of. And even if I go back to being a classicist, about film theory and say what is a horror film okay a horror film involves uh, the macabre and some sense of the supernatural this fits into a horror film newsflash so does get out but this all he's trying to do is just like put this in this other category where he can be against the grain, where he can stand up against the wave of other people being okay or positive towards this and go, see, I my taste is above all this. And <laughs> I, I, at the end of it, you're like, you don't know what the fucking movie's about. He ends this endless sentence with, Instead, what it is, dot, 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 or dot, 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 I guess, dot, 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 fucking stop with the ellipsis. What it is, is a creepy tale of a small town and an angry clown. Just close your fucking computer. <laughs> and, and seriously, read some books. Read some Roger Ebert reviews. Listen to some Pauline Kale interviews. For Christ's sake, pick up. Truffaut's conversations with Hitchcock, for the love of God, learn some fucking film theory, please. If you're going to be the next generation of Rex Reed, guess what? We don't need it. I'm probably going to cut all of this out, but I had to fucking no, say it. No, please, please don't. Because I'm usually the one that goes on these, like, you know, furious blood pressure raising rants and and it's about time that i spread the wealth a little bit and let you go on one but i mean <laughs> well, but, but 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 honestly is there i mean is there anything worse than a contrarian i mean really is there is there any there's a i'm pretty sure you know particularly since the the age of the internet has become upon us that there's that that, that they're going to have to do a, a newly revised edition of dante's inferno and create a whole new level for contrarians <laughs> because there's nothing more insufferable and unnecessary than somebody going in and taking something that is getting a lot of positive reviews, getting a lot of, you know, people really excited about it and say, yeah, you know what? That wasn't that good. I mean, there's mainly that you're dumb for liking. Yeah. There's, there's nothing worse. There, there's nothing. Now I can understand why people 
wouldn't like this movie. Like I yes. can I can see I can legitimately see why someone will go in and go this ain't for me. I can even see why people will go in and say this isn't scary because mm-hmm. well first of all I didn't find it that scary but uh I did find it very atmospheric and effective. It kept me uh it kept me with it, it, it instilled me with a sense of dread throughout the whole thing. Um but I do feel that it, as far as horror goes, this is horror with like a very strong, and this is very typical of Stephen King, horror with an extremely strong moral center. This is this is about good versus evil. This is about, you know, there are things that are bad in this world, and there are people who are good in this world, and like this is not this is not a this is not a uh, a, a debauch. It's it's very much a movie about kids trying to set things right in a very bad world. And so I don't even think you can come at this movie with just like it's a it's a excessive horror film. Like it has its it makes its point and it has its heart set in a very like black and white good versus evil world. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure how you could look at it and say, no, this isn't a horror movie. I yeah. mean, it's 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 just I mean, it's got blood exploding out of a sink. It's got you know a, a child dragged into a sewer to his doom, and, and I'm not sure. Like, okay, if it's not horror, then what is it? Yes, the, these kids are 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 seeing their mortality right in front of them, and they their their brothers are died. They they see all these kids around them disappearing. They feel like they are circling a drain, and at the bottom of that drain is a very hungry mouth. Listen, something's either funny to you or it isn't. It's involuntary. You either laugh or you don't. Something's either scary to you or not. You either jump or you don't. And if you come back to me and say, these are the reasons why I feel this doesn't work. And I did not buy this. This component of it does not play for me. And as a result, the structure breaks down. And while I feel this works and that doesn't this, like, okay, you understand how film works. You're coming at me with an opinion that is, is informed. But when you just go, you're dumb for believing this, for, for, for thinking this clown's scary. You're, you're <laughs> like, oh, I don't, that's not movie criticism, man. It's not, and, it's not a criticism. It's, it's a, it's a, you're not criticizing the movie. You're criticizing the people that enjoyed the movie. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's, just, that's not. We don't. You, you can keep that. Nobody really needs that. You know, nobody needs to have their uh, their 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 bubble of enjoyment burst because someone is bored and lonely and doesn't have any friends off the internet. Well, and I can also say that this this story in particular, this might be one of those stories that just means more to a person the older you get, because. I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying that young people wouldn't appreciate it, but it is one of those things, especially with a lot of Stephen King. The older you get and the more you look back on childhood and the more perspective you get on your own childhood, especially with it, like it's that it's the quote. It's the, you know, being a child is what is it? Being a child is learning how to live and being an adult is learning how to die. And that's that's sort of exemplified in this story. And and the more perspective you get on on childhood and adulthood, the more terrifying these kind of tales are. The more aware of your own mortality you become, the more horrifying these these types of stories become. So a, a person who looks at a story like this and says, this isn't scary, this isn't horror, might have a different opinion on that in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. 
that's one of the things that King does so well is if you read these books at different times of your life, it changes. Like, like I mentioned earlier about how I didn't get until I was much older that much of what The Shining was actually about was alcoholism. Um, you know, I first read Pet Cemetery when it initially came out, which I guess I was maybe about 11 or 12. And then I tried rereading it after I became a parent, which I do not, under any circumstances, recommend. Yeah, it's a rough one. <laughs> because you find yourself, when you read initially, you find what uh, what Lewis Creed does after his son passes away as horrifying. And then when you're a parent, you're like, eh, you know, I don't think that's such a weird idea. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, I, could, I could definitely see myself probably breaking down and doing that. Because it's just the idea of what losing a child is like, even just... You know, entertaining the idea until you are a parent and it just takes on a whole new dimension. Yeah. And that, that being said, there were a slew of young people at my screening, uh, a entire gaggle of teenagers who whooped and hollered and had these huge reactions to everything that happened. They were buying it. I have a two-part question for the, the, both of you. All right. Um, sure. Now, obviously one, you know, glaring scene that we're not going to talk about in the book um was thankfully left out yeah, of um course. what do you and I, I thought it funny that that how they did sort of play that scene was how i thought it should have been done in the book and, and how i and, and and to this day it boggles me as to why they didn't just do that but um what were you what were you disappointed that was left out of this is the first part of the question what were you disappointed by what was left out of this one and what do you what do you hope they will they will leave in in the whether than the you know the, the cosmic turtle like what little scenes and memorable moments in the second half do you hope that they leave in um i would what i missed from this that i wish had been there is if they had reversed had let mike be the historian and let ben be the kid whose father had died in the war and his desire to see him back is something that mm. he's tempted by, by Pennywise. Yeah, but in a 1988 setting, what war would his exactly? Died and in? that's the problem: is how where could he possibly have ha this happened? And <laughs> I was like, I, that's changed. where I became stymied. Was like, I, I just think that's one of the things. By the circumstances of how you're going to work it, you're going to have to sacrifice that part. And I just wish they had found another way to shuffle it. Maybe he hadn't died in military service. Yeah, he could have been a cop. He could have been a cop. He could have died in accident or something. Exactly. So, some sort of loss where the reason why he's there is, is this. And he feels like if dad were here, I wouldn't be in this situation. Would have been something that would have felt. Particularly uh, uh, resonant. That's what I'm going for. It would have felt resonant with with the audience, new and old. Um, what I would like for there to be in the next scene is I really want that Stan Yura scene to be as powerful as it is in both the book and the miniseries. And they set it up well, but I still think it's going to be something where how do you get that dread back where you see him you understand the reason why he's going to crumble right then and there. Do you do that? Do you have him slit his wrists in the bathtub? Do you have him show back up and immediately just 
put a gun to his head? Like how how do oh, we Oh god, play no, this? I hope they I hope they don't do that. I mean I, I hope that they are you know, immediately established as as weakened by just finding out that he had he pretty much almost immediately committed suicide as soon as uh, as soon as he was told what was going on. Yeah, that just that yeah. right that, that right there is just like, oh well this isn't a good start. Yeah. Yeah, because they they needed the set they needed the Cotet of Seven in order to do this. Which makes much more sense in the book than the words I just said. Yeah. <laughs> but in Stephen King lore, you need a group for the most part to get shit done and there's a distinct reason for it. The reason they survive in the end is all seven are of them are there. They survive for the same reason they survived that rock fight. Because they back each other up. Yeah. Well, beyond what I said before about the cos- cosmological, the, the, the cosmic stuff, the, the, the Lovecraftian stuff, besides all that, um, what I wish they, what I wish, what I miss from the, uh, from the book that I wish had been in the first movie is, wow, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot, and I feel like it's unfair. I wish we'd gotten to see what happened to the rest of the bullies. Um, yeah, the, do, he, do we think, do, do we, should we assume that Henry killed them? We don't. We don't know because yeah. they they sort of drop those characters immediately and uh, and I ho- since we didn't see Henry's body hit the hit the ground, I'm going to assume they can still bring him back for the second movie. We never see him be dead, so uh, um, but I, I wish we had gotten to see more of because you know the clowns not the, the it is not going to kill those kids the main kids. Part of the joy was seeing the joy, but part of the, the 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 creepiness of the book was the way the different bullies all got knocked off, that fed into their like hidden hidden lives and hidden predilections and uh, hidden terrors, uh, that, and we just didn't get to see that. We got to see like one bully get get killed by something that scared him, and uh, I I feel like that's just that was part of the meat of the of the original. I also wish we of course gotten to see more of the history of Derry and learned a little bit more about it, but I just love that stuff. Uh, for the second movie, I, I really, really hope that they uh, they go off in a different direction. Um, like it, this isn't a specific thing, but I would love for it to be just full of surprises. Uh, as far as like you know, maybe even as far as like who dies, who kill, like who commits suicide in the beginning. Maybe it's a different character in this one. Maybe it doesn't even happen. Uh, maybe maybe they just maybe they just veer off in in a completely different way of getting back to Derry. Like we don't know because. I have to believe that there's a master plan behind this sequel uh, that he had. They had to have been writing towards this sequel because like they, they tried to present the announcement of there's going to be a second it as some kind of big surprise. But we know that that's been in the drawing board for the entire time. The only the only thing, the only real wish uh, that I have. And uh, this is just a reflection of modern horror in general is that I really hope Patrick Wilson isn't one of the kids. <laughs> Why? Oh, what do you from your lips to God's ears. I, lo- I love Patrick because Wilson. Because he's in everything. Because he's in every horror film these days. And well, I am, okay. And enough. I am just like, I'm, I can see them being like, he'd make a great bill. He'd make a great bill. Patrick Wilson would really make a great bill. And I'm like, number one bill. on the fucking call sheet and is going to be Patrick fucking Wilson. And I'm like, this Warner Brothers loves him. You know, and they are itching to put him in there. And I beg them from the bottom of my soul, just don't. Because it's too expected. You already gave us a whole bunch of people that you didn't expect. You know, that this movie works. You don't need to game it. 
to get people to come well, back. Well, my, 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 my big wish when this was announced uh, was that all the surviving children from the original miniseries would play the older versions of their characters <laughs> in the second movie, uh, the new, because they're all the right age. So they can just get, but I mean, unfortunately, you know, like young, you know, the actor who played Bill is dead, but uh, everyone else I think is still alive. So just throw them into those roles. That'd be a great, as they say, Easter egg for the fans. <laughs> and it would give Emily Perkins work again because she's one of my favorite horror actors. All right, my, um, uh, my, mine are just kind of standalone scenes. I, even though this is, this is complete wish listing because I know there's no possible way it would have come across on film well. But the one scene to my dying day that I will remember from it that it will never leave my mind ever is the death of Patrick Hockstetter. The, mm. the, oh, who, yeah. Who is basically like sucked dry by something that I pictured in my mind as being like a, you know, the, the, you know, those you know, stuffed shell noodles? The, yeah. Looking, looking, <laughs> looking like that with wings. And, yeah. but, you know, it's such a, because I think because it's so hard to imagine what this looks like that it actually makes it scarier. He just, you know, he, he gets these little creatures attaching themselves to him. And then you know, and then he gets dragged into a into an abandoned refrigerator. And of course, in this one, Patrick Coxstetter is the the bully, who he just like dragged away by something. He, he kind of looks like Adam Driver a little bit, which is he does kind of look like Adam Driver. Um, Very and, satisfying. And then uh, I think in the 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 second one, another standout scene that that really shook me up was when, uh, sorry, that's my cat in the background. <laughs> no. um, uh, is when Beverly goes home to visit her father and there's a whole extended sequence in which an old lady is living at her house. Yeah. And then the house basically turns to candy. And then then it's just this really spooky scene. You know, apparently I think that her father has actually died at some point and that it's, and that it's Pennywise who is disguising himself as this old lady. And again, I think that might be a little hard to. I mean, they kind of did it okay in the miniseries. I think they did away with the candy house aspect. Yeah, they did. But they, you know, the old lady kind of looked like her face was melting, and that was that was pretty rad. And and you know, I, I think that it could be done fairly well. But that's just you know, that's that's a particular scene that that I would like to see. Did either of you think that they were going to actually have the Paul Bunyan statue come to life? Oh, I thought it for yeah. like half a second. As soon as I saw the statue, I'm like. That, that thing's not going to start walking around. Yeah, there were definitely, like, little touches of, you know, yep, we read the book, here's Nebolt Street, yeah. here's, here's Witcham mm-hmm. Street, you know. I mean, that was like, kind of cool to see the streets, yeah. Yep, yeah, I was like, I remember, it's like all triggered, like, yeah, I remember that part, you know, I mean, it's just, but I, I mean, again, I think that having the, the, the Paul Bunyan statue come to life works a lot better in, in a book than actually seeing it happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing with the hedge mazes in, in The Shining. Right. right. Like having the hedge animals works in your, it's, and, it works in your mind. And, oh but God, once you it was see it so, roaming around, it was, you're like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever so seen. so bad in the, in the miniseries. It was just such a ridiculous thing. Well, the, the, the hedge maze worked for me in the book because – they 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 explicitly say that you never see the animals move like they only move when you're not looking at them and you just hear something and then you turn and they're all frozen behind you and then i was like why'd they have to cgi them into moving animals in the tv like that's the easiest effect you just because don't they, show because, them move because because they could I, I mean, I no think, they know, couldn't i mean well they thought they could you know <laughs> in theory they could 
they 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 succeeded with the hedge animals as well as they succeeded at making Stephen Weber frightening. <laughs> oh, Stephen Weber. He's I mm, listen. Stephen Weber uh, works very well in a good many things. He's the best thing about the Desperation miniseries. Oh wow, uh, you're right. And he's also a fantastic voice actor in his audiobook version of it. Oh yeah, he's great in. So no, this is not me slagging on Stephen Weber. This was this was <laughs> yes, me, you are. This was me slagging <laughs> Stephen Weber to task. You're Mr. <laughs> Anti Stephen Weber. Bronson Pinchot is the best part of the. <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus. Can we, can, Holy fuck. Can we do, can we do yeah. a bonus episode at some point on the Langoliers? Because I have things to say. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that there's enough room on the internet for what we would have to say about the Langoliers. Uh, it's, oh boy, talk about a one joke uh, story Sorry. from Stephen King that goes on too long. Holy hell. All right, well, listen, we could talk about this all day, and we almost did. Yes. But when it comes down to it, we all urge you to go out and see it and see it in the theater yes. with people around you mm-hmm. and put your phone down. If that's something you really need to hold on to a couple days ago, someone got on Twitter and decided to make a proclamation that the way to get people to come back to movie theaters is to allow people to text. And this is the best argument ever against that well, I, I, you need to be i saw i saw at the alamo and 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 every, it was a full house i don't think anybody really cared about not being able to use their cell phones no it, this is something you need to be you need to be around and experience on mass mm-hmm. and then yes you can witness the details more intimately for the rest of your life in the confines of your own home but <laughs> Go out and see a movie. And I understand if you can't. Like, babysitters are expensive. Getting popcorn and candy ain't cheap. But... Get a movie pass. Get a movie yeah. pass. <laughs> especially, especially horror movies. Uh, the, the things that don't work very well on your laptop screen, you usually just need to be seeing them with other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's mass hypnosis. Yeah. And it only works if you're part of the group, is what it comes down to. Uh, and with that, uh, thank you ever so much, Phil. Uh, where can uh, people hear more from you? Well, I have a podcast called It's Del Toro Time that I do with my 16-year-old, Ollie, uh, where we go th- we've gone through the movies of Guillermo del Toro, and now we're going through... Uh, and his friends. And now we're going through all the movies that inspired him. You can find it at deltorotime.wordpress.com or just search It's Del Toro Time. And with The Shape of Water coming soon. Yeah, we got a big one. Uh, this is the, the perfect time to jump on board because I, I think people are going to be talking about Shape of Water from what it sounds like uh, here towards the end of the year. It's, it seems to be getting a great response. Yeah, it's, it's building a lot of steam. I yes, wait. Uh, Gina. Where can people find out more about you on the internet? Uh, well, not necessarily so much about me, but they can find out my thoughts on seventies and eighties television at tuneintonight.wordpress.com. Uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Kill by Kill Pod. Uh, have something longer to say? More than one hundred and forty characters. Uh, Kill by Kill Pod at gmail.com. Kill by Kill Podcast on Instagram. Rate and review us on iTunes if you got a second. If you like the show, it helps us be seen and heard by more people. And if you tell us what your favorite kill is in the Friday the 13th series or even it, we'll, we'll talk about it here on the air. That's our solemn promise to you, the Kill by Kill listener. And so don't fret, people. Um, a new uh, episode of concerning the Friday the 13th series is forthcoming. Uh, we're not getting in the way of that at all. The body count continues. 
We'll see you later, people. Bye bye. You'll float too. <laughs> Kill by Kill is produced by We Write Good and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures. Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.